Good morning. That's the last time you're going to see that. I know you're going to miss it. I can. I feel a collective. Oh, at least I got one over there. That's that's good. Yeah. It is. Uh, we're finishing up in Genesis today. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit Crossing Limestone. And I'm glad to see you, and just wanted to welcome you. Um, three. We're going to jump in like with three points real quick, and then we're going to do a little bit of an overview. Um, number one is we see fulfilled promises. Number two, forgiveness displayed. And then number three, foreshadowing Jesus. That's, that's what we're going to kind of see today. So fulfilled promises, forgiveness displayed, and foreshadowing uh, of Jesus. And so we, we close Genesis today, Genesis 50, 50 chapters, right? And I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned from it. Most of all, I hope you love Jesus more uh, than you did when we started, that you got to see how big God is, but yet how close to us that he is, that we get to know this Jesus, not about him only, that's how we get in, but that we know who he is, him, right? That he's the the creator of the cosmos, and at the same time, he's the one that comes to us like he did Jacob in the darkness of the desert and says, trust me, follow me, just look to me. So let's do a little bit of review. The the theme in this series has been um, promises made, promises kept, right? That, that God always keeps his promises. Uh, we, we saw like shortly in the garden, God says to Adam and Eve, after, after he says, it's very good about his creation, he says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And since they were made in the image of God, the earth would be filled with his image if they did that. Therefore, his glory would be spread. And that was kind of the first great commission. But we know that they didn't do that, right? We, we know that they did not. They ate the fruit. They disobeyed. They distrusted God. They questioned his goodness. And so when they ate from the tree, they weren't supposed to. They set the template for all the rest of humanity. We see it played out over and over again. And so we learn from Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, God, man cannot make his way back to God. He just can't do it. He tries over and over and over uh, to do that. Adam and Eve, then we see the flood, and then we see the Tower of Babel. Uh, we see that left to his own devices, man would never choose God. In fact, that's the pattern of the entire Old Testament as well. We, we cannot, left to ourselves, we cannot make it back to God. And so starting in Genesis 12, God makes a promise that unfolds to the rest of the Bible. I promise that you and I need to be reminded of a lot, not just weekly even, but a, a lot. It's a promise that is dependent on God's faithfulness to his name rather than your ability or my ability to live a good life, rather than our ability to be a good person, whatever that means, and the culture and the context in which you live, it changes, right? It's based on him and on his character and on his faithfulness and his promise. And so the question is, do you remember that? It was to Abraham is in Genesis 12, right? It says, go from your country. So what he told Abraham, go from your country to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and in you and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was Genesis 12, one through three, just kind of summarized. And God promised that he would bless the whole earth. He would restore the whole earth to himself. And so Genesis 12 through chapter 50 tells us how he plans to do that through the family of Abraham. It's no longer a command for his people to do on their own. It is a promise that God and God's people get to be a part of it. It's what he is doing. It's bringing, being part of bringing a, a blessing to the whole world. The blessing is the heir, 
the child of promise, the Messiah, the snake crusher, if you will. You remember from the garden and, and, and the serpent was there? Jesus is the snake crusher. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat the enemy. He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to mend all the brokenness. He's going to restore the, from chaos to order the shalom, the peace of the first garden, except it's going to be the whole earth. This is what we're, we're kind of looking for. This is what Genesis is setting us up for. It is pointing to. That's why we went through the book, that God keeps his promises. It isn't up to us. It isn't on us. We don't have what it takes. And yet we, like all those outside of the promise, will fail unless God intervenes, unless he invades our world and rescues us. We need a deliverer. In Genesis 12 through 50, especially chapter 37 through, through 50, shows us a prequel or, or a movie trailer for God's ultimate rescue plan for his children. God kept his promise to Abraham. We saw that. He and Sarah had a, a son born from their own body that would eventually produce the line of the Messiah, the Savior. He, we followed the promise from Isaac and to Jacob, and now we, we ended up in Joseph, and we see that God is still keeping his promise. Even through the sinfulness of the men and the women, he continues to be faithful to his word and to his promise. And at the end of the book of Genesis, we have the death of Jacob and Joseph. And they're both recorded, one at the beginning of chapter 50, one at the end of chapter 50, which is where we are today. And for Jacob's funeral, it was kind of like a, a state affair for Egypt, right? The, the coffin, there was like this official mourning period of 70 days. It's a long time. Right. I think the Hebrew were like somewhere between seven and, you know, uh, 14 or so. But it was a 70 days that it was officially mourned that the whole country set aside time to weep because Joseph had made such an impact on their culture that the world stopped and they took note when his father passed. And it just made me think this week, are we Christians, are we as Christians making an impact on our culture? Like to the degree that if we were gone tomorrow, we would be missed. Like, is, is the church doing that? As, J, as Joseph did for Egypt, right? Will the city of Athens miss a church if it weren't here? Do we impact our city like Joseph did the unbelieving Egyptians? I just I think about that. I want us, I want us to impact it to push the gospel and have thoughts like that. Go, man, I, I want Jesus to get credit. I want him to... to, to to be an agent of change here. But Genesis 50, that's just as a side thought. Genesis 50 tells us that Jacob and Joseph want their bones to end up in the land promised by God. They, they don't want to be buried in Egypt. And so we see that in the first part of chapter 50, Jacob makes this, hey, could you do this? And as soon as I'm gone, will you take my bones back and bury them immediately after my death? And so Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh and they have this big entourage and they bury Jacob in the promised land. Joseph's bones don't make it until Moses leads the children of Israel out of, of the Exodus, out of Egypt, right? Hundreds of years later. So what does that tell us? Why do we care about where the bones are? Why does the Bible want to tell us that? Because it lets us know that Jacob and Joseph die in hope that God will fulfill his promise to the land. He says, I'm going to give you the land. Hey, look, you know what? I'm not going to be here. My bones are still going to be here. 
I want them where God's going to do this. And that ain't here, he said, in the land that he promised. So I believe that God's going to do that. Would you just go on and put my bones there so that when they are resurrected, I'll be there already. It'll be where that's going to happen. I want that to happen. This is... This is where the new heaven, the new earth, they, they didn't see all of that yet. They, all they knew is God, God promised the land. He's done everything he's promised so far. I haven't seen that part yet. Man, I want to see that and I want to be there. Just go on and put them there. That, that's the faith that we are to live with. The, the, the belief that what God says is true, that he does keep his promises, that whatever he said, he will keep, that it's in his power, not based on our ability. And so we, like Jacob, like Joseph, live to the degree that we're like, put our bones where it's going to be. I'm going to put my soul where it's going to be. I'm going to put everything that I've got into where everything is important, where the, where the eternal measure and the weight falls. I want to put my life into that. That's how we are to live in hope today. And so we get that story at the beginning with, with Jacob, and we get uh, Joseph's bones in the end, and we get that recorded later that his bones are taken by Moses. And in between these two deaths, we get this little story. And the little story is kind of a, a summary of the life of Joseph. It's just, it's kind of like his whole life is just summed up in about just a few verses between he and his brothers. Point two, for forgiveness displayed. So that's the fulfillment of the promises. The, the forgiveness displayed is verse, look at verse 15. That's kind of where Stephen was reading this morning. Verse 15 starts with, with Joseph and, and, and his brothers. And, and when they saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Is that odd if you were here when we were preaching on the great reconciliation of chapter 45? Where, where Joseph, and he wept, and, and, and it was all good, and God sent me ahead, and, and God, meant, God did this, and don't worry about it, and all this forgiveness, and they're all good, and they, they all move up there, and they're all one big happy family. Jacob dies, and they're like, he's going to hate us. He's going to get us back. He's been waiting all this time. I know he's been plotting. He's just waiting for Jacob to go. And so they come up with this idea, right? So they sent a message to Joseph, verse 16, and it said, Your father, not our father, your father, you're separate from us. We're down here. You're up there. You're in power. We just, we have to figure out how to, how to live here now. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. This is what Joseph's brothers are telling Joseph. Hey, Jacob, he wanted you to be kind to us. Please don't forget that. Look at the next verse. What's the next verse say? After they say that, it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why? Why did Joseph weep? Now you got to remember, this is not right after they reconciled in chapter 45. This is a long time later. This is 17 years later. The famine's come and gone. They're living life, doing life in Egypt. And first of all, most of the scholars say that this is probably not even true, what they're saying, that Jacob probably never even really said that. They're just using that as kind of a technique, as a shield to protect themselves. Guilt and unresolved shame seem to be surfacing. They don't even believe what Joseph said 17 years ago, it seems. 
Now, maybe this will connect with you like it did me this week. They, may take a second. They wanted to be forgiven for what they had already been forgiven for. Ever been there? They didn't believe it. They wanted to be forgiven for what they had already been told you have been forgiven for. They don't justify their sin. They don't excuse it. They don't minimize it. They don't say, oh, it was a mistake when we we threw you in the pit or, or when we left you for dead. It was an accident. It was an error in judgment. That's what we do nowadays with sin. We minimize it. We excuse it. We blame other people. We push it aside. They just owned it. They call it what it is. Transgression two times there. Sin. They called it evil. They are desperately trying to gain forgiveness. Even if they have to deceive to get it. To manipulate this. That's what they know. That's what they're like. They just, they've been lived under Jacob, the deceiver, right? That, that, that generational sin, it just patterns and it's their default. It's their go-to if they're not having their eyes fixed on Jesus, on, on, on their Lord at this time, right? And so that's what they've done. They know they need forgiveness and they don't believe that they have it. And so Joseph weeps because it exposes that for years, They haven't believed who Joseph is, that he was a transformed man, that he wasn't holding that over their head, that he wasn't all those things that they had believed about him, that they weren't seeing him clearly, that he was different, and that they had forgotten what he did. He he forgave them. He really did. God really changed him. Joseph really forgave them. And then he even extended true compassion to his oppressors. I mean, this was amazing. It wasn't fake. And now they're treating him like all that was in vain. Not because of Joseph, but because their slow hearts just can't believe that grace is real. So what do you do? What do you do when you still think you need to be forgiven for what you've already been forgiven for? That's what I want. What do I need to do? What do I do? I got to do something. I got to, I got to do it. Back in the nineties, I heard a speaker say something like this. that really resonated with me and it can be confusing if I don't say it right. But he says, when you work for what God gave you, you lose it. And what, what that means is when you work for what Jesus gave functionally, you lose how it changes you. You lose it. You, you, when you work for forgiveness, you're living like you're not forgiven. It doesn't change the state of the effect. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that you are forgiven, but you don't live like it. Do you, do you see how that, that works? If you think you have to earn forgiveness, you will still work for it functionally in your life. You will look for functional saviors. You will look for being a good dad, being a good husband, being a high achiever at school. You're going to look for making a certain wage. You're going to have a certain uh, initials after your name. You're going to look for it somewhere else because you don't believe you really have it. And when you don't believe it, you don't live like it. And it doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean that you're not even forgiven. It means that you don't believe 
the good news. You're not believing the gospel. And when we end up working for what Jesus gave us freely, we live defeated. We're constantly trying to make amends, constantly trying to pay God back or to not make him mad or to do enough, long enough, right enough so that we'll feel okay about ourselves, so that we can go into his presence. We're Joseph's brothers. It's not how we're designed to live. And so the brothers thought Joseph's smile at them was fake. And that now since his father was, the, the, their father was dead, he would unleash the justice that he had stored up for them, which they deserved. This is why Joseph wept. They forgot who he was and what he had done. The forgiveness wasn't real to them. They knew it. They heard it in their heads. And when I say in their heart, I don't mean emotions. What I mean is what the Old Testament refers to the heart. That's not even the word it uses. But when we say heart, we mean the motivational structure for your life, the will, the desire, what makes, what makes you tick, what makes you run, what drives you. That is what I'm talking about when I say the heart, right? And so it wasn't real to their hearts. The mind is included in your heart. Your heart is not included in your mind when you're thinking this way. Second Peter one nine says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's just not real to us. We need Jesus to be real. We need his forgiveness to be real. We read it somewhere. Somebody told us about it. But we're not walking in it. This is where these guys were. This is precisely why we need each other. This is why we need community. I don't trust myself. Wait, Jamie, your emotions are falling. I get that. So is my mind. And I'm scared sometimes of that. I need somebody to say, hey, here's the gospel. <laughs> Why are you forgetting that? You, you, you know, you just, you do. I'm like, I do. You and I need one another to remind one another of the goodness of God. What he's done for us, who he is, because we forget so often. So let's slow down over these, these few verses, 19, 20, and 21, and just kind of walk through this process that we're given. We'll start with verse 19, because I want you to see how Joseph reacts to this. These are pivotal verses, because it's pivotal in how you live your life and in your understanding of who God is. So traits of true forgiveness, 19, 20, and 21. It's kind of like a, a miniature points within a point, I guess. Uh, the first one, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? True forgiveness does not assume the place of God. We would never say that we do that. We, we just find ourselves there. But we would never, unless somebody really points it out and we have the humility to see it, we wouldn't see that. We assume the place of God sometimes. It doesn't, it, it, to not choose the place of God, it doesn't choose who to forgive. And who to withhold forgiveness from for judgment. It listens to the great shepherd, Jesus, who tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In chapter 6 of Matthew, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a confusing verse. 
Because Jesus isn't saying he will forgive you if you forgive others. Based on your forgiveness for others, he will forgive you. That is not what, what he's saying. He is saying when you understand your place, when you understand that your sin is so deep and so offensive to God, yet, yet, there's a big yet, but because of Christ and his blood and his work on the cross, you've been completely forgiven, completely forgiven. And when you get that, you're free to forgive others. Because when you choose not to forgive, what you're saying is, God, you can forgive them, but I'm not. Let me stand in your place and I will decide who gets forgiveness and who don't because they really hurt me. And it probably is a real hurt. And yet we have a command that says you have to forgive others. And if you don't forgive, it's because you don't understand what you have been forgiven. You don't understand the poverty of your spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's a supernatural thing. It doesn't say that all your anger is gone now. It doesn't say that you've forgotten whatever happened and that things should go back to the way they were. What it does mean is that you are choosing to treat someone the way God treats you. That's hard if you've really been hurt. But it's also something you're commanded to do because it's for your good. And only you can do that if you're relying on God, the Spirit of God within you. This is not some religion where you could pull that one off and grit your teeth through it for years. You can try. You'll get angry, and then you'll get bitter, and you'll get dead in your heart. And you'll wonder why God doesn't show up. Because you did it without him. And you didn't really do it. You've got to be reminded of that. It means that you're not going to act on the basis of their sin or treat them according to their sin. Just like Psalm 103 says, the way God treats us. He doesn't treat us according to our sin. What if we all treated one another like that? Be a different place, this world. In other words, like Joseph, you don't stand in God's place judging who to forgive or not. You will not think that you'll do a better job of justice than God. You can leave correction of personal wrongs in the hands of God. You don't have to fix it. But I tell you what, letting go of that is hard. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, Don't repay evil with evil. Oh, but an eye for an eye. You're missing the point. I don't need that chart just yet. That's the next point. Number two, verse 20. As for you, this is, so remember, this is Joseph. And he's talking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, quick reminder, Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit, left him for dead, hated him because his father loved him more than them. This is what he's speaking to. This is when he was 17 years old now, right? This, that's what happened then. And so this is probably the most famous verse in this passage, and it's a summary of Joseph's story. And it's got huge truths and implications, right? The sovereignty of God. That sin can't mess his plans up. 
This is good news coming right here. Good news for an old dude like me that thought he just messed his whole life up. Sin can't mess up his plans. Other people can't mess up his plans. I even can't mess up his plans. I'm not that powerful. I'm reminded of that here. It doesn't release us from the responsibility of holiness to seek after God. It doesn't give us a pass on sin or remove responsibility when we do sin off us. It doesn't. But it doesn't remove the tension from God is sovereign <laughs> and his will will be accomplished. It will come to pass, right? And it blows our, our little human thinking. Look, look at the life of Jacob. He deceived his brother about his birthright. He lied to his father about the family blessing. Those are two huge things. As a result, his life falls apart. It was his fault, his sin. He blew up his life. He was on the run. And seemingly his life was ready to downshift into plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need one. God used his sin to meet his wife Rachel. He used the sin of Laban to bring Leah on the scene. These all resulted in the line of the Messiah to save the world. This is, this is how God works. As many bad and sinful choices as Jacob made, God wasn't stuck. He wasn't wringing his hands. Oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. Oh, that was a bad decision. What am I going to do now? i got to choose somebody else. Let me get one that will finally get it right. I need that guy on my team because he doesn't blow it. Those people don't exist because they're people. And somehow in his sovereignty, he takes brokenness and ashes that we present to him that we think are so awesome or sometimes we're aware of how broken they are and he takes the brokenness and the ashes and he makes them into a beautiful masterpiece the hope here is that you're for child if you are a child of god you cannot destroy his plan no power on earth can this is good news to a middle school student who feels like they've blown it this is good news to a high school student has no idea what to do with your life or you feel like your friends have made your decision for you or your parents are on. You don't know. You just. This is good news for a college student who feels like they've already made one too many bad decisions. This is good news to a guy like me, a husband, a parent, and a pastor, to know that I'm not wrecking it. And yet somehow, when I trust the Lord, he makes it into something that's beautiful. And I don't understand it. And look, look at the verse, man. I mean, look at it. <laughs> the verse says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Meant. Wasn't an accident. Meant it. I wanted to hurt you. I wanted to mess you up. I wanted you to die. God will take that, flip it on its head like he does the kingdom for your good, for his good. Now, do you always see it right now? Absolutely not. They meant evil. But because somewhere, somewhere in the pit or somewhere in the prison or somewhere in the darkness of suffering, Joseph's heart was transformed by the mercy of God to really trust him, to really follow him. He had a different worldview. He, he had a different view 
of the world. Like when I was in Nepal and, and we're down at, at 4,000 feet and we're walking through valleys and I'm looking up at all the mountains, I have no idea where I'm going. The mountain looks like it's about a mile that way, but it's really 22 miles that way. And I've got to go over two rivers and all kinds of basins. I have no idea where I'm going. I can't see it. You go up 14,000 feet, 15,000 feet, you're like, oh, I see now. I need to cut left and then go right or I'll just be stuck. Joseph's view had changed. Joseph doesn't have to pretend, oh, it's not that bad. Your sin against me wasn't that bad. He doesn't have to, he, he doesn't have to say, oh, what, you know, you're just terrible and there's no recovering from this. He's able to be a realistic person and say, you know what? Evil is real. It's not an illusion. And I don't expect otherwise in this world. But God is always, always, always working for good, even though I don't see it. And it may be years or centuries or not until the last day of history until I know how that worked. But he brings about fulfillment of his promises. And only God can take what other people mean for evil and somehow through what we call miracles bring good. His plan will be accomplished. No one will thwart it. No one is powerful enough to do that. Now, if that doesn't get you excited about being a Christian, about being alive, about hope, if it doesn't push you to worship, that God can't be stopped, that you're not in the way, that he is on the throne and nobody can do a thing about it, I don't know what does. I mean, just part of me just wants to you know, stop. I got another point. But part of me wants to stop right there. And Jesus is the ultimate example. Of good being brought out of evil, right? People meant his death for evil, but God meant it for good. Verse 21, so don't fear. Joseph continues to go here. This is a man that's been changed. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph doesn't repay evil with evil. He doesn't just forgive. He forgives and he extends love and kindness to his oppressors. That's a changed heart. That's a transformed heart. That's not a, I got to, well, it's my duty to forgive. That, that's not that. This is evidence of someone who has spent time with God, like Moses, and their face is shining. They're a different person. They're able to, to, to leave things with God. It takes great humility and great confidence in the Lord at the same time. A bold humility, if you will. Like, like someone who knows that they don't deserve this forgiveness, but boy, they sure are sure they've got it, so they can just extend it. That's what Christianity should look like. And to do that is to anticipate Christ. And so our last point, number three, a foreshadow. Speaking of anticipating Christ, Genesis 3 spent... Uh, Genesis spent three chapters on creation, just three. Genesis spent 14 chapters on Joseph. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Joseph's attitude toward his brothers certainly anticipates Jesus' attitude toward us. What we did to him, who he is, and what he did for us. So a quicker, just a, a little bit quicker or bigger picture here if you can put that that chart up there right now this is this is exciting to me you may not be able to read in the back this is just i just handpicked a few of them they're they're closer to, to 30 plus similarities that just have a scripture by each one of them right but the fact that joseph was loved by his father 
And we hear God say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We see that Joseph's brothers didn't believe him and, and they hated him. We know that Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. Joseph's brothers conspired against him. The Jews took counsel against Jesus. Joseph was imprisoned based on false charges. False witnesses were brought in against Jesus. Joseph was stripped and sold for silver. Jesus was stripped and sold for silver. Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. The Jews didn't recognize their Messiah. Joseph was condemned with two criminals. In prison, Jesus was crucified with two criminals. Joseph's brothers finally bowed their knees. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And Joseph was made ruler over Egypt, and he was at the right hand of Pharaoh. And when Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised again, he was raised to the right hand of God the Father. Joseph was a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus, before the law was ever even given. He shows up in Genesis. Genesis spends 14 chapters on him, three on creation, I'm not doing this justice. So I say, hey, go back and look at that. Spend some time on that. Joseph pointed to a true and greater deliverer who wouldn't deliver his people from physical starvation and death alone, but eternal death and separation from God. He didn't just suffer, but Jesus died and was raised again so that you and I could truly live out of joy and peace, even in the midst of great sorrow and tribulation in a messed up generation. So the question is, do you know Jesus like that? Does your life reflect this kind of transformation or does your life reflect constantly trying to turn over a new leaf, constantly trying to be a good person, constantly trying to live up to the code that you think your your parents set or that you set for yourself? Do you really know the difference between the gospel and religion? Because Genesis presses us to look to Jesus, to recognize our sin, and with joy, after we've grieved over it, with joy, turn from it and run to him. Say, thank you for doing everything. You are my everything. I owe you my allegiance, my life, my worship. These are lives that are grateful and that follow him with joy. So let's pray. Let's put three directives on the screen up here. If this is your first time here, we, we sing, we take the Lord's Supper, we listen to the word, the preaching, and we pray. That's what the early church did. So number one, I would just simply ask, are you living a life that demands a gospel and explanation? That's not to, say, to beat you up if you don't. It's for us to honestly recognize, are we? It's a question that screams, are we being honest? Or are we dead on the inside and proclaiming to the world this is what Christianity is? Because it's not attractive to the world if we're not really alive. And we need to know that for ourselves. So we say, hey, there's a chance to cry out to God, transform your heart. Number two, if you're struggling with unforgiveness, whether it's either of yourself or you're withholding from somebody else, maybe you need to hear from God to speak kindly to you like he did, like Joseph did to his brothers. 
And that can only happen through Jesus. And so in the second one, you would just say, God, help me. Help me to forgive. Help me to believe that I need to be forgiven. Would you speak to me? And then finally, pray that, that this church and the other churches will so impact Athens for the gospel that if we were gone tomorrow, we would be sorely missed. We would be noticed like Jacob. Let's just spend two or three minutes praying, and then I will finish this in prayer and lead us through the Lord's Supper together.